Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall continue our impeachment series, this time learning about the history of impeachment, starting with the crafting of the language in the Constitution and how the impeachment process has played out over time. Clips today come from Amicus, On the Media, Deconstructed, and Article 2, Inside Impeachment. Help us understand what the framers were trying to include and what they were explicitly trying to take out that their British forebears had included in impeachment. Sure. And I will say it was so interesting how largely kind of originalist the terrain of the debate during the congressional hearings uh, was. And, you know, I'm not an originalist. You're not an originalist. Pam Carlin is not an originalist. And yet I actually do think this is a sphere in which it is extremely useful to spend some time grappling with the founding era materials, in part because there's so little else to work with, right? Much of the time we have founding era materials and, you know, several hundred years of practice. And it's some combination of kind of examining all of that that I think helps illuminate present meaning. And and here I think we have to do that too, but but we just don't have that many examples to work with. And there is relatively extensive, although, you know, it's spotty, the kind of actual constitutional convention history, but there is some documented history. And, and part of the reason I actually think it's so useful here is because so much originalist debate is kind of cherry picking examples from a very mixed historical record, and both sides can deploy originalist arguments about what people at the time understood or what the framers might have intended, and you kind of end up at a stalemate. And here, I don't think that's the case. I actually don't think the evidence is particularly conflicting. It's sometimes a little difficult to parse, but it's not so 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 let me actually take your question on uh, head on so you know so so how did they you know before they even get to the language obviously they have to decide whether there's there's going to be an impeachment provision at all and there's actually some debate about that you know there's this argument that they were setting the whole thing up so one of the things they decide is the president will be subject to re-election and for your terms and there is an argument that that is the way to deal with you know the need to expel a president is to expel him through the electoral process vote him out. Yeah. yeah and literally vote him out is on the table yeah. at the constitutional convention and they decide that's not going to be enough, right? Sometimes presidential misconduct is going to be so dangerous and, and you know, and this is key, and sometimes it will involve attempts to manipulate elections to entrench a president in power. So that's not going to work uh, just to rely on elections. Um, so they say we will create an impeachment process. It will include the president, right? In England, there had been impeachments for hundreds of years of, you know, ministers um, and things like that in in the under the king, but the king was not subject to impeachment. So that is a huge and important distinction between American practice and English practice that some of the law professors um, uh, during the uh, Wednesday hearing focused on. And so, yes, we're going to impeach, we're going to have impeachment and yes, it will include the president. And so then, okay. Oh, and who's going to have the power of impeachment? They think about like maybe the Supreme Court should do it. Maybe some state, like the majority of state legislators can do it. They decide to give the power to Congress, divide it between the House and the Senate and then write the critical question. Like, so how will we define the kind of conduct that will warrant impeachment? Um, and, so again, there's, you know, there's some records and it's not like a perfect transcription of everything everyone said, right? So there's some selectivity. Um, but they think about, you know, initially the first proposal is for impeachment for malpractice or neglect of duty. So, you know, like truly just being like really derelict in discharging the duties of the presidency. Um, and, um, that language quickly gets replaced with treason, bribery, or corruption. So that's actually, you know, a pretty big shift. It's it's pretty broadly agreed that um, malpractice, neglect of duty is just like too low a bar, right? right. That can't be. Who that, among us has not neglected? <laughs> we all have our days. 
<laughs> um, and so, so then, okay, so then there's a shift to something much more serious, um, you know, treason, bribery, corruption. Corruption ends up getting removed um, and just treason or bribery remains for a little bit. So there's a minute in which that looks like it's going to kind of encompass, you know, these two discrete and serious categories of misconduct. Um, but so then George Mason, who's really an important kind of player in all this, came up a lot on Wednesday, um, adds maladministration, which is like another cut basically at this malpractice neglect of duty um, and had been used in some English impeachments. This term, this had been the charge, maladministration. Um, but that, too, is subject to the objection that it's just, you know, it's not, it doesn't uh, set a high enough bar. So Madison, you know, wants to do something else. He says, why is a provision restrained to treason and bribery? Treason, as defined in the Constitution, will not reach many great and dangerous offenses. But Madison also thinks that maladministration is not quite right. He says, so vague a term will be equivalent to a tenure during pleasure of the Senate, right? The Senate basically can accuse anybody of maladministration, or the House has to accuse, but the Senate could remove anybody. Um, so Mason takes out maladministration, replaces it with high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and that's sort of it in terms of the, I mean, there, there, there are some other um, secondary records, but in terms of the actual, the kind of key, like, Ferrin's records, that seem, that's, that's most of what's recorded. Um, and so, you don't have much more that the framers have said about it during the convention. You sort of look to some of the things that they said. They wrote in the Federalist Papers. They wrote in exchanges of letters, in speeches. And, you know, you begin to get a sense there are a few things that they seem to be most concerned about. And um, one of them is this idea of foreign influence, right? This is a young country. The English and the French are still vying for influence. And the idea that a president could be subject to corruption or influence, undue influence by a foreign government seems to be a huge concern. Imagine. Imagine um, so that seems to be sort of one. Um, two, kind of corruption and self-dealing, right? Abuse of office for personal gain of any sort uh, seems to be something that you see come up. Um, that there is this, you know, Hamilton in Federalist 68 and 65 um, writes about um, the kind of political nature of the offenses. Offenses in order to be impeachable must be the kind of thing that can be distinctly done by public men, he says, you know, that can be denominated political. So, like, you know, you and I can't do impeachable things, right? Like, you have to have a certain kind of governmental power to abuse at all. Um, but so abuse of power, abuse of authority, you sort of see that at the heart. And then there are a number of things said in uh, in various venues that do suggest that a president's attempts to entrench himself in power um, are also the kind of thing that might warrant impeachment. So the kind of election and election manipulation um, is also something that comes up. So you sort of take stock of the kind of roughly contemporaneous commentary. And, and there actually is, I think, pretty consistent set of themes that you see arising. And, and, and two things that I think are, are implicit in what you said, but let's tug at them a little, Kate. One is, I think it's really important to expressly note that the framers had the whole range of really dire consequences under the British impeachment regime, including beheading and seizure of lands. And they took all that off the table. They wanted it to be really clear that in their minds, this is not a heavy lift. Like, this is a thing that could happen. This was not the death penalty. This was a misdemeanor. Right. I think that's uh, also a, a hugely important point. They they did think they were kind of civilizing and domesticating what had been a pretty savage kind of remedy in England. And as you said, sometimes a capital offense. Um, and that's they were really clear that what this is like, it's serious. The bar is high. We should, you know, try to be specific about what the kind of conduct is. But if the worst happens, 
you lose your job. Like this is about job loss. And again, I don't want to minimize the seriousness of impeaching a president. It's hugely serious. But it is the consequences were very um, very explicitly and in a very considered way limited to two things, removal from office and potential disqualification from future office holding, which is understood as requiring a separate vote in the Senate. So impeachment doesn't necessarily mean you can never hold public office again, but the Senate can choose to take that separate step. And that is it in terms of the consequences of impeachment. And and the other thing that I, I'd ask you to just unpack for one second Again, implicit in what you've said, but I think it, it, it gets us a little bit down the Turley rabbit hole when Jonathan Turley is talking about bribery and he's talking about, uh, you know, a Supreme Court case that is implicates a very narrow bribery statute that is a tiny chunk of the bribery, the vast panoply of bribery related conduct. One of the things that you're saying is these are not crimes that Kate and Dahlia could do. These are very much facing elected officials uh, in certain contexts. And I think one of the reasons this gets difficult is that we're trying to map this onto something universal, right? All Americans can commit, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors. And I think the point was they were building, in some sense, a separate canon of law that was directed only at an impeachment. And and help me figure out how when you start talking about, you know, was he jaywalking? Did he mug someone? That's not super helpful in terms of thinking through what the framers were worried about. Right. Well, first of all, there's not even a federal criminal code at the time that they're doing right. this drafting. So they certainly can't have been meaning to peg like the word bribery to anything in federal law. There was nothing. And um, but there were basic elements of common law bribery. And that is basically what Noah Feldman testified to. You know, what are you doing? You are corruptly demanding something in exchange for some kind of official act. If you're a public official doing bribing, if you're a private person, you can bribe too. But, you know, that's a little bit different. Um, and those are the basic elements. And it is true, those basic elements do end up getting incorporated into the federal bribery statute. Um, but the statute as it's written and as the Supreme Court has interpreted it is in no way binding on Congress in these proceedings. Now, um, and I think even Turley, who, of course, is the GOP witness during this hearing, um, says pretty categorically, you don't need to have a crime. So I actually think that there was during, say, the Nixon impeachment, which was the first modern impeachment, and everybody kind of had to go back to the drawing board and say, like, what is what does this all mean? And there was a pretty active debate, like, does it have to be something that we can point to in the criminal code? So I think there was more of a division of opinion about it back in 73, 74. And I don't think today there's that much of uh, that strong a camp that believes that impeachable conduct needs to be criminal. I think it is pretty broadly agreed upon that you can look to guidance from the criminal code and there are criminal law principles that may inform this analysis. And there have been criminal offenses, although also non-criminal offenses, enumerated in the articles of impeachment that we have had against the three presidents who've had articles approved against them. Um, But none of that is binding on Congress. And, And I do think that Turley, the McDonald case that you reference, you know, is this case that absolutely does narrow the reach of the federal bribery statute involving this uh, governor in Virginia. And I think it narrows it too much. Like, I don't, you know, um, I think it does make it very difficult to reach official corruption. Um, but that can't constrain what Congress can do here. And I don't I don't even think that Turley really was making the argument that it should. Before we talk about Carlin Kwok, Carlin, I do want to say I think she makes this point. I tried to make it in print last week saying the just vote him out doesn't work for precisely the reason the framers were worried about, which is he is actually 
imperiling free and fair elections. And she makes this point quite explicitly. The founding generation, like every generation of Americans since, was especially concerned to protect our government and our democratic process from outside interference. For example, John Adams, during the ratification, expressed concern with the very idea of having an elected president, writing to Thomas Jefferson that you are apprehensive of foreign interference, intrigue, influence. So am I. But as often as elections happen, the danger of foreign influence recurs. And in his farewell address, President Washington warned that history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. And he explained that this was in part because foreign governments would try and foment disagreement among the American people and influence what we thought. The very idea that a president might seek the aid of a foreign government in his reelection campaign would have horrified them. So, Kate, I'm going to ask you if you could... Make the best argument you can, drawing a line, as Professor Carlin really did, between voting and the right to free and fair elections and the impeachment charges being leveled against the president. I guess another way to say that is, why is the claim that just vote him out in 2020 not sufficient if you're Pam Carlin? Yeah, you know, so when I saw the list of law professors who'd be testifying, I was actually a little surprised to see Pam Carlin on it. I mean, she's an extraordinary litigator and writer and thinker and teacher, um, but she hadn't really written about impeachment. And so um, I, I wasn't quite sure what role she was going to serve on the panel, but she is one of the foremost scholars of the law of democracy. She writes about elections like this is at the core of her expertise. I mean, she's a constitutional law expert more broadly, but this really is her area. And as soon as I saw the statement, I was like, oh, of course, this actually makes perfect sense and is quite a brilliant choice um, because, the, you know, promoting access to the ballot and um, the integrity of American democracy, like, is kind of her life's work. Her brief stint in the Obama administration was doing Voting Rights Act enforcement, but and she's written the leading casebook on the law of democracy. So the constitutional and statutory and regulatory regime around the administration of elections and um, the preservation of democracy is what she is most expert in. And so that is what she spoke to. She spoke to other things, too. Um, but she seemed to kind of try to reorient this debate uh, toward the integrity and legitimacy of our elections and thereby our democracy. And that this was not just a corrupt shakedown for the president's personal benefit in some, you know, financial sense or familial sense. It wasn't that kind of personal benefit. It was personal benefit to the detriment of the integrity of our elections. And and that, I thought, was this very powerful point that had been not totally lost, but hadn't been really the focus of the impeachment debate until her testimony. And that is, I think, where she really tried to focus things. It may seem like Trump's flouting of Congress is singular, that his governing by executive fiat is unprecedented, but nope, been there, impeached that. In 1868, the House of Representatives voted for articles of impeachment against President Andrew Johnson. As a U.S. senator and vice president under Abraham Lincoln, Johnson had fought hard against secession and revered the Constitution. 
but installed in the presidency after Lincoln's assassination, he thwarted congressional plans for Reconstruction. His reason? Congress had declined to immediately offer the 11 former Confederate states their former seats without concessions, such as the right of suffrage for freed blacks. Thus, Johnson concluded the legislative branch was illegitimate. The incomplete Congress could pass no laws, and he proceeded to do whatever he could to return freed slaves in the South to an existence of utter degradation. Brenda Wineapple is the author of The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and The Dream of a Just Nation. She says that after Lincoln died, Congress was out of session. Johnson refused to call a special session and instead began acting on his own. He started putting into place executive actions in the South that would reconstruct the governments along southern white supremacist lines, prevented the formerly enslaved people from making contracts, from moving, from marrying, from any kind of due process. When Congress got back into session, first they passed a civil rights law. Johnson vetoed it. Congress passed the legislation over his vetoes, and then they started the Reconstruction Laws to put the formerly seceded states back into Congress by getting them to redo their constitutions, to make sure that black men had the vote, and also to ratify the 14th Amendment. Because by this time, Congress had decided due process should be enshrined in the Constitution. They also passed the Tenure of Office Act. The Tenure of Office Act said that cabinet members who have been approved by the Senate, cannot be fired unless the Senate approves that, too. The reason they passed that particular law was to protect a specific cabinet member, Edwin Stanton, who was the Secretary of War. The military had been kept in the South to make sure that black men and white loyalists were able to get to the polls. There were generals who were appointed essentially as viceroys who had fought to protect the Union, and now they see people slaughtered on the streets. So they were there to prevent this kind of violence. Johnson fired Edwin Stanton, and because Johnson had violated a specific law, the House of Representatives felt that it had no choice but to vote overwhelmingly to impeach Andrew Johnson. That happened in February of 1868. I want to ask you about Johnson's motives in his authoritarianism. One is that he wanted to rebuild the Union as quickly as possible. The other is that he was just a naked white supremacist. Which of those do you think best describes his motives? He did want the Union reconstructed as quickly as possible. But he said, this is a white man's country, and by God, it will be a white man's government. Johnson was born in North Carolina, as poor white as you could possibly be. His mother sent him and his brother out as indentured servants. And when he ran away from the tailor shop where he was indentured, 
the owner of the shop put out a wanted sign as if Johnson were a fugitive slave. He's not a planter. He's not part of the Southern aristocracy. But it does not mean that he doesn't really, at some level, want to be part of them. So when he gets into the White House, he begins pardoning those aristocrats who served in the Confederate Army or in the Confederate government, almost a hundred a day. He becomes quite authoritarian. He loves the Union, but he also loves the power of white people over everyone else. Thanks to the Telegraph, there was a lively daily press already developed in 1868. But almost every paper was affiliated with a party or a faction of a party. That's absolutely right. Was it like every outlet was Fox News spinning the narrative to suit its own constituency? Well, there was MSNBC, too. I mean, <laughs> but yes, all the press was partisan. But you had some really wonderful journalists, and the most surprising one was Mark Twain. And early on in the impeachment trial was actually covering it. Caustic and as insightful as anyone that you wanted to meet or read. I made a little joke about Fox News, but... Were any of the major papers at the time so partisan as to utterly distort the actual straight dope in order to support its audience's worldview? You had a lot of speculation. You had a lot of propaganda. The New York world gave me the chills because it was so incredibly racist. But that doesn't mean they were making up things. The scary thing to me is that this kind of propaganda sometimes hardens and... It calcifies into history. Yes. And in fact, the calcification of history, I can give you a good example. John Kennedy's Profiles in Courage, which got a Pulitzer Prize. One of the chapters claims that a man named Edmund Ross, junior senator from Kansas was himself courageous, heroic for casting the vote that kept Andrew Johnson in office. Andrew Johnson, it said, should never have been impeached. It was the radical, fanatic, maniacal Republicans who wanted him out of office. And you can still sort of hear some of that point of view today. Kennedy writes, there was no real reason for Johnson to be impeached. The issues were not national issues. You look back and you say, how can you say that? Well, if you read Ross's memoir, that's what he's going to say because he's justifying his vote. The deciding vote, rather than being a profile in courage, (laughs) may have been a profile in bribery. What's the historical evidence? Well, there's quite a bit of historical evidence. Edmund Ross, the junior senator from Kansas, he kept uh, going to Johnson, and there are letters where he says, for my vote, would you please take care of, say, my father-in-law, my brother, uh, myself? Johnson would do whatever he asked, and then Ross would come back for another favor. Sorry to have to come back, but for my vote. <laughs> so, Holy <laughs> For my vote? Uh, yeah. The nation was only 79 years into the life Mm, of the Constitution. But even then, they had to deal with the murky language of the framers, as in, what the hell are high crimes (laughs) and misdemeanors? 
So for guidance, they turned to Alexander Hamilton? And we do the same thing today. In Federalist 65, Hamilton said that a civil officer, particularly a president, could be impeached for something called maladministration and abuse of the public trust. Now, that doesn't make things very clear, but it was actually pretty smart not to be so specific because the kinds of maladministration or misbehavior or abuse is going to change over time. Unfortunately, what's elastic is also kind of murky at the same time. So how did the House determine that Johnson crossed the line into political crime? People were so offended by his bigotry, by saying Congress was illegitimate and couldn't pass any laws because those 11 states weren't seated in it. There were some who were so horrified by that that they wanted to impeach Johnson as early as 1867. The issues went to the Judiciary Committee. We've heard of that. But they were waiting for a specific violation of law because of these very murky issues about what's abuse of power. By the time that they actually voted overwhelmingly, as I said, to impeach Andrew Johnson, they voted because of the tripwire, the violating of the Tenure of Office Act. So firing Stanton was the, hey, would you do me a favor, perfect phone call. Exactly. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the perfect phone call. You know, it was considered so egregious, and it didn't take very long for the House to drop those articles of impeachment. There were 11, nine of which dealt with the violation of the tenure of office. All right. Now, spoiler alert, Andrew Johnson was acquitted in his Senate trial by one very questionable vote. Was it mostly along partisan lines? Mostly, but not entirely. There were seven Republicans who voted along with the Democrats to keep Johnson in office. What happened was you were very close <laughs> to an election. The Republicans had Ulysses S. Grant, the popular war hero, waiting in the wings. They wanted to nominate him, and they were afraid that if Benjamin Wade, considered a radical Republican, were to take Johnson's office, even for a short amount of time, that would somehow undermine Ulysses S. Grant, and Grant might even have to put Wade on the ticket with him. But there were other reasons, too. Something that we would call dark money today was floating around. There was a House investigation of what was going on, favors being passed back and forth and promises made. By and large, however, the impeachment was a partisan process. This all played out, familiarly enough, as Johnson was readying himself for a re-election campaign. Was there consideration in the House about just letting electoral politics take their natural course? No. The House felt it had no choice but to go forward with impeachment. I mean, it had been dragging its feet, but when Johnson violated the law, they just said, that's enough. The Senate is a different story. It's a higher bar for removal from office. It's not a simple majority. It's two-thirds. Now, I happen to know of a president facing impeachment mm. <laughs> who responds 
by refusing to cooperate with congressional subpoenas mm. and with vicious ad hominem attacks on all of his perceived enemies, including members of his own administration. How did Andrew Johnson respond to the process? He wanted to take his case to the people. He was a demagogue, stirring up crowds and actually calling, believe it or not, for the execution of his perceived enemies, particularly men in Congress. So he was as epithet-strewing as anyone you might think of in the present. Oh, and I might add, uh, he didn't need his Secretary of Energy to compare him to Jesus Christ. He just took care of that himself. Well, he told black people that he was going to be their Moses. Oh, God. He thought of himself as deeply persecuted, too. Johnson was acquitted, and then came the election. But it's not as though he lost in a general election to Ulysses S. Grant. He never got to a general election. No, the Democrats felt that he was toxic. They had had enough of Andrew Johnson. Not quite enough. <laughs> no. His political career did not end. No. He was not a broken man. He was an angry man. And in the 1870s, Andrew Johnson is sent back by the Tennessee legislature to the United States Senate. And what does he do? He stands up and he goes on a rant against Ulysses S. Grant. During congressional recess, Andrew Johnson goes home and passes away before he can do any more damage in the Senate. Throughout this conversation, I've been pointing out parallels, some of them actually quite eerie, to uh, 150 years ago and today. What lessons should we take from the Johnson impeachment? Having nine articles of impeachment focused on the violation of a law and only two on abuse of power and obstruction of justice means that people forgot that the real issues at stake were not the question of this particular law, maybe even this particular phone call, if you want to make that kind of analogy, but actually the direction that the country should and would go in. Today, what's at stake, too, is the direction of the country, that really what's behind the abuse of power is the destruction of a whole democratic structure and the independence of a sovereign country. And the fact in both cases that no one, not even a chief executive, is above the law. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, the super comfortable socks that it will not surprise you to hear make a great gift. I've been enjoying my Bombas socks for years now. It's no secret why they are super soft, as they claim. They're made of the world's softest cotton, plus they have extra cushioning for extra comfort. Each sock is chock full of special features like built-in arch support that feels like a nice hug on your foot, and they're smooth across the top, so no annoying toe seam. But what really seals the deal for me, and I think will for you, is that Bombas has a philanthropic mission designed to fill a real need. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters and founded Bombas to help, so for every pair they sell, they give a pair to someone in need. That's why Bombas is the gift even the person who seems impossible to shop for will love. Go to bombas.com left today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M 
B-A-S dot com slash left, Bombas dot com slash left. This week, Kevin, we've had the House Intelligence Committee releasing its impeachment report. Uh, We've had the House Judiciary Committee open its own impeachment hearings. What do you make of the way House Democrats have conducted this impeachment process? Have they done it by the book? Is there a book? Yeah, there really is no book. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the the book is the Constitution and the Constitution says the House can set up impeachment proceedings uh, uh, according to its uh, – its, uh, however it's like. Uh, and so we've seen them unfold in different ways. You know, we, we – uh, with uh, Andrew Johnson, uh, the House basically rushed to impeach three days after he'd uh, fired uh, Edwin Stanton and then a week later went back and drew up the articles of impeachment. Uh, they did it, uh, I think, uh, backwards uh, from yes. what we'd, we'd see today. With uh, Nixon, there were inquiries in the in, in the Senate of a House, and then finally the House Judiciary Committee took it up and uh, uh, and, and plowed ahead that way. Uh, with uh, Clinton, there was uh, really no f- extended hearings in the House Judiciary Committee. They relied on the Star Report to do all the work for them. They kind of rushed it through, uh, and so we've seen uh, Democrats today have have done their own thing, but that's in keeping with past practices where uh, it's really been a one off every time. Jonathan Turley, a law professor at GW at George Washington, who was uh, one of the witnesses on Wednesday in front of the House Judiciary Committee, the four law professors who turned up to talk about what it means to impeach a president, what are high crimes and misdemeanors. One of the things he complained about, he was the GOP witness. uh, One of the things he complained about was that this is happening too fast. It's rushed compared to previous uh, impeachments. And that's not true, is it? As you just mentioned, the House impeached Andrew Johnson literally immediately within days of him committing his impeachable offense, his firing of his secretary of war. And with Clinton, I believe we're on a similar time frame to Bill Clinton. Yes, we are. I think, in fact, we're at the point in the Clinton impeachment where they would have actually voted on the actual articles in the full House, I think, either today or tomorrow, according to that timetable. So it's not too fast at all. That's a, that's an odd complaint to make that it's too fast. There's no provision of the Constitution that it has to proceed uh, over a certain set course of months or weeks or whatever. Uh, but it, it also the, the impeachment um, uh, uh, provisions in the Constitution are ones that are there in case a president needs to be impeached. It doesn't say do it slowly. Yeah. Uh, and often in many cases, if a president needed to be impeached, it would be something that would have to do uh, happen fairly quickly if you yeah. were dangered of a country. And interestingly, many Democrats believe it should be done uh, quickly, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Just in terms of what we've seen this week, at the House Judiciary Committee, uh, four law professors turned up to testify about what impeachment is. Um, one of them, Michael Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina Law School, uh, he made an interesting point that I've been banging on about on this show all year long. I just want to play you that clip. We know that not all impeachable offenses are criminal. And we know that not all felonies are impeachable offenses. We know further that what matters in determining whether particular misconduct constitutes a high crime and misdemeanor is ultimately the context and the gravity of the misconduct in question. It's kind of a crucial point, isn't it? Because when I go on CNN or MSNBC and I'm sitting with a Republican panelist, they say, oh, he's not done anything criminal. But that's not what impeachment is about. It's not about criminal offenses. I'm glad to hear a law professor saying that. 
That's exactly right. And if you look at what past presidents have been brought up for on 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 charges of impeachment, again, Andrew Johnson was uh, one of the some of the articles basically just dealt with his boorish behavior. He was an embarrassment. He was drunk in public. Those kind of things. Those weren't crimes, but they were uh, uh, something that uh, Congress felt uh, he should be removed for. Imagine uh, having a boorish president, Kevin. I know. I know. It's it's hard. It's hard to think about. Uh, but, but think about seriously what the, the most significant crime you, uh, charge you could uh, impeach a president for, failing to defend the country from a foreign attack, that's not technically a crime. But I think no. everyone would agree that that would be an impeachable offense, a, a, right? A dereliction of duty. Exactly right. And what's interesting, though, is when you heard these law professors talk about what are high crimes and misdemeanors, and I've said on this show before, the famous quote from Gerald Ford when he was a member of Congress is that high crimes and misdemeanors are whatever the House of Representatives say they are at any moment in time. Uh, it's not about, you know, uh, felony crimes or breaking uh, the criminal code, in which case, let me throw this out there. Was it wise to have four law professors turn up to talk about the law and criminality? Should they maybe have had you and some of your colleagues from the world of history, uh, some historians to talk about precedent and to talk about what has happened in previous impeachment hearings? Well, I always think it's a wise move to speak with historians on any occasion. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, they, they did that in the 1998 uh, Clinton uh, impeachment hearings. They, they brought in my colleague, Sean Malentz was one of them. They brought several uh, historians up to, to speak about it. Uh, and uh, I, I I personally find those discussions interesting. I, I guess Congress decided that they would go in a different a different route at this point. And you mentioned already in your opening answer, you mentioned Johnson and Nixon and Clinton. These are the three presidents who had impeachment hearings. Uh, obviously, two of them were actually impeached. Nixon uh, resigned before he could be impeached. What are the big lessons, do you think, as you've been watching this unfold over many months? Uh, and, I, and I'm a keen follower of yours on Twitter, and I urge everyone listening to follow you on Twitter, not just for your history, but for your humor. Um what are the big lessons that you think people should learn from previous uh, impeachment uh, episodes uh, this time round, including Democrats? Yeah, well, I think one of the lessons is that uh, – or one of the reminders is, is that a lot of the things we're hearing about the process of yes. this impeachment hearing and how it's outrageous. It's bullshit, isn't how, it? How it's, a lot of the process it, stuff is bullshit. You know, that's that's a, that's an academic term I don't like to use, but yes, it is bullshit. Uh, the uh, the idea that closed door hearings are somehow remarkable. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee hearings uh, for Nixon's impeachment were almost entirely closed door affair. They had a two hour opening segment in, in early May and then they were closed door throughout the rest of May, June and most of July and then finally opened them up again at the very end of July before they took the vote. So that was an entirely closed door process. And if that's the model you're going by – it was closed door. Uh, the, 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 the Clinton impeachment hearings, uh, almost entirely closed door. Starr testified in public. Virtually everyone else's testimonies were heard behind closed doors. So these kind of process arguments, and I can make that case for several of the other ones, are largely, as you said, bullshit. Uh, the other thing I think to take away is that uh, what were these? What were the charges at, 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 in these cases? Uh, again, Clinton uh, famously brought up uh, for, for perjury, but also for obstruction of justice, and there was an attempt to get him on abuse of power. Those are the same ones that are the central uh, uh, impeachment charges articles drawn up against Richard Nixon: obstruction of justice, abuse of power. We're going to hear those time and time again uh, in the Trump. So there is a commonality. There is a commonality. So the things he's being accused of now are in the same vein as what they were accused of then. I would argue that what Trump has done is it's much more 
more serious, uh, certainly than the than the Clinton charge, which is basically lying about oral sex under oath uh, and and trying to cover that up, or even the uh, the Nixon uh, charges of of obstruction of justice and abuse of power. I think Trump has gone far beyond that. So uh, I think we're we're clearly into uh, given the historical precedent, we are well above the standards called for by uh, the Nixon and Clinton impeachments. A clip I played in the intro to the show uh, was from Senator John Kennedy, Republican senator, who said recently on CNN that he's offended by the impeachment process because it's, quote, the first partisan impeachment in the history of our country. What do you say to him? I think he really needs to read some American history. Again, the Johnson impeachment was entirely partisan. The Clinton impeachment, almost entirely partisan. Uh, the Nixon one, only at the very end did you finally get Republicans coming on board. And so it's a misread to say that that these are, are always uh, bipartisan affairs. Um, a, it's not true of the history, but also what we've seen in recent years with this current Republican Party is that they have learned that the, the way to deny anything bipartisan support is simply to march in lockstep against it. This is what they did throughout the, uh, the the entirety of the Clinton yes. uh, or the Obama years, uh, and they've done now uh, uh, with impeachment. And and so, of course, they're not going to support this. I don't think anyone should be surprised. It's It's been what they've been doing for a decade now. And, and on, on, on that, you said, you know, this is a misreading of history. When you look at some of the arguments, one phrase that's used often nowadays in American political coverage is bad faith. Mm. How much of what the Republicans are doing on impeachment, uh, what they're doing in, at the House Judiciary Committee, what they're doing at the House Intelligence Committee, what the likes of Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and uh, Doug Collins and others have been saying and doing on air and in the committees. How much of that is bad faith, do you think? I can't read their minds, but I can only read the record. And I think if you look at the objections they made in the early stages about how uh, the president isn't having a chance to be involved in this and the president's lawyer needs to be involved in this and the president needs to be able to ask these witnesses. Well, the president was allowed to ask these witness uh, questions today. He didn't show up. Uh, or Wednesday didn't show up. Uh, and so, um, that is a, a really remarkable, uh, I think revelation that, uh, for all the complaints they made, uh, about not this process not being fair, once the process met their terms, they gave up any interest in that. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And best of the left listeners, get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed, R-E-E-D, and use the promo code LEFT. Former White House counsel John Dean's famous 1973 Senate testimony about his first-hand knowledge of Nixon's cover-up was striking, succinct, and memorably metaphorical. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, 
and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. And on Wednesday, Dean himself was on CNN with his own assessment of the proceedings. What struck me today in listening to these two witnesses is they already have more than they had against Richard Nixon to impeach him. John Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you. So expand on what you said, that there's already more at this stage than there was against Nixon? We're at a fairly advanced stage in this proceeding. We've been at it almost since the outset of the Trump presidency. (laughs) (laughs) If you go back to the Mueller investigation, where he stacked up 10 potential instances of obstruction of justice, that outdid Nixon. And that evidence is just sitting there on the shelf. That was one of the thoughts in my head. The other thought was that we know pretty much where these witnesses are going from the little bit that has leaked out from their executive session. And it's pretty compelling evidence. They're very strong witnesses. But when you were listening to the two witnesses on Wednesday, was there a big moment that you felt was particularly revealing? Ambassador Sondland's telephone call in a restaurant with a Taylor aide that was heretofore unknown. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. I think the Republicans would call that triple hearsay. Well, you know, that's another thing that I find fascinating. There are more cases throughout the country in federal courts where the federal rules of evidence apply that are determined based on hearsay because of all the exceptions to the hearsay rule. There's a rule that says that hearsay is inadmissible, but there are so many exceptions to it. You can drive a truck through them. It still is a determining factor in many, many cases in federal court. Absolutely, in countless cases. The Republicans don't seem to realize what they're talking about, which surprises me. There are a few lawyers there. It is really not a very good argument. The argument also is a little fallacious since the Republicans are the ones who don't want the primary sources to come up and testify. (laughs) Uh, The White House is withholding them, and they certainly aren't putting them on their witness list. Like you were. You were a direct source. I really didn't want to be a witness. And contrary to the Republicans saying that everything happened in transparent, open environment during Nixon, I actually testified before the House in executive session, as did all the other witnesses against Nixon. Yes, his lawyer was there. In fact, his lawyer is one of the reasons that his case caved when the so-called smoking gun tape was released as a result of the Supreme Court saying that the president had to turn over all of his tapes to the grand jury. His counsel, James St. Clair, realized the president had lied to him, and he had lied to the president. So he went to the president and said, Mr. President, you've made me a liar. You've made me obstruct justice. It's my ethical obligation to go to the House Judiciary Committee and tell them I misled them. Do you think that today's Supreme Court would have made that decision to release the tapes? 
the only person I've ever heard claim that U.S. versus Nixon was not properly decided is Justice Kavanaugh on this bizarre radical conservative theory of the unitary executive Mm -hmm. who has all power. And this is what we're seeing some of play out right now, where they're claiming witnesses don't even have to show up in court or at, at hearings because these superpowers of our unitary executive. Well, the founders wrote those provisions in Article 2, and these conservative scholars seem to forget we were breaking from a monarchy when (laughs) we wrote that constitution, and they want to bring the monarchy back because they see the future not being very good for conservatives. You know, we had Tim Naftali on the show a few weeks ago. He's a historian, former director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. He noted one big difference between 1973 and today. Nixon was capable of shame, and he also had a sense of presidential norms. He covertly did these abuse of power, but wanted to maintain the appearance of cooperation, while in fact he was engaged in very heavy stonewalling. President Trump doesn't seem to care and doesn't think that his supporters care. If you compare the situation where Nixon was forced to reveal and turn over his tapes, knowing that was the end of his presidency, the same parallel situation today, I don't think that Donald Trump would do as Nixon did and turn over the tapes. He'd say, listen, I've got the army. You send your marshal down here and I'll shoot him. (laughs) And one of the reasons is that Donald Trump appears to have no shame. Nixon could be embarrassed. I've never seen Donald Trump embarrassed. The New York Times TV critic James Ponowazik wrote this week that uh, the media coverage of Watergate, quote, gave us much of today's concussive ballistic jargon of scandal. There were bombshells. There were smoking guns. Ever since, we've measured controversies as if on a decibel meter, judging them by their fireworks and explosive drama. But actually, he says, for a modern-day viewer, the 1973 Senate hearings looked rather quiet. The documents that you've just given me are uh, uh, Xerox copies of... uh Uh, a log, which I maintain myself. Uh, Quote, there were no yammering newsroom panels, no countdown clocks, no hashtags. There's just testimony in a hushed hearing room and two soft-spoken anchors at humdrum desks trying to figure out what the president knew, when he knew it, and whether democracy still worked. You know, one of the things I never understood after my testimony was people coming up to me and saying they enjoyed my show. (laughs) I thought, what in the world are you talking about? It is not high theater. It is not high drama. But those who are comparing it to past proceedings forget, while 80 million people may have watched my testimony, it wasn't high drama. It was a very general job-type interview. Mitchell realized that Liddy was not familiar with the election laws and asked if I would assist him in any way I could in getting himself familiar with those laws. I agreed. We were talking about shame. One element of this scandal and all the others that we've had in the Trump presidency is that the Trump camp acts as though if you do something in public, 
It isn't a crime. And sometimes the media act that way, too. Just last month, even as the Ukraine whistleblower news was coming out, the president publicly said this. China should start an investigation into the Bidens, because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with uh, with Ukraine. What do you make of that? Does that strike you as a, a new, effective kind of defense? Apparently, he picked this up from Roy Cohn. Just do it openly, do it blatantly, and people will just think you're a tough guy and not a criminal. So, hmm. you know, maybe that's his thought. I never found Roy Cohn to be much of a role model. But maybe he's right. It does actually take some elements essential to criminal charges away. Conspiracies rely on secrecy. That's the interesting part about Ukraine. He really did do this in secrecy until the whistleblower brought it to light. He wasn't calling on Ukraine to investigate the Bidens on Mm -hmm. the South Lawn. That happened after he got caught. Senator Howard Baker had a succinct and still famous question in the Watergate hearing. What did the president know, and when did he know it? Howard Baker was using that to pin me down on exactly what the president knew and when he knew it, thinking, I'll get Dean to perjure himself. Why was he trying to set you up? Oh, you know, everybody thinks Howard Baker was Mr. I'm in the middle, and I want to see justice done. There are two Howard Bakers. There was a Howard Baker in the closed sessions where he voted to do everything he could to help Nixon, and he had a back channel to the White House. And then the public Howard Baker, who always came out and said, ah, we reached unanimous agreement. And it was just all a fraud. If The only person who really knew this and could record it for history was Sam Dash, the chief counsel. He just found Baker to be a remarkable hypocrite. One thing you said earlier jumped out at me, that what became clear during the Watergate hearings in 1973 and into 74 was the contrast between the Nixon behind the scenes and the public Nixon. And that was a very jarring contrast for people to sort of absorb. Does the fact with Donald Trump that when we see a transcript of the call with the president of Ukraine, when we see little glimpses of what's happening behind the scenes, the fact that it really does seem like the same Trump we see in public Does that insulate him politically in a way that that Nixon wasn't? No, I think what we see was Donald Trump 24-7 is the guy that we know. I mean, you can look at the transcripts of the conversation, but all go to listen to those rallies, how he talks to people and how he abuses not just the office, but decency. And I just find it. I'm not quite sure how I can characterize it. I find it outrageous that so many people cheer that on. And I know some of them personally. They say it's about time we talk that way. I don't think it is. Republican or Democrat, I think the presidency represents a higher calling and a higher order for this country. And he has abused that office and abused that legacy of presidents who are tough guys. There's no question about it. We've not yet had a woman, but they're tough. They have to be tough. 
But at the same time, there is a standard that is expected of a national leader. And he walks all over 24-7 because he is a maniacal, self-absorbed guy who believes that if he says it, it's got to be right. And so I don't think we've ever seen anybody quite like him in the Oval Office. It's a real test of the country. And by the way, I think that the country's up to it. What do you think Nixon would have made of Trump? He would have despised him. He wouldn't have said so publicly, but he would have mocked him behind the scenes. Nixon, whatever else we thought about him, was a keen student of international affairs and of the political process. From his earliest years on, paid attention to it. And he was willing to challenge the system. He was willing to cut corners. But to go to the degree that this president has was just not in who he was. At the end, obviously, he betrayed himself and the country. But uh, Trump is unique, quite honestly. And look, it's up to the country to decide what kind of a president they want. I don't know what's going to happen in this next race. I don't think anybody does at this point. If you look at it in conventional terms, it should be a layup for the Democrats. But the Democrats now seem not to be able to get a kind of cohesive, coherent approach to what they want to do about him. So we're in for a test. We've just heard clips today, starting with Amicus discussing the framers' process of designing impeachment. On the media, explored the Andrew Johnson impeachment. Deconstructed discussed the comparisons to the Nixon and Clinton impeachment investigations. On the media, spoke to John Dean, who was instrumental in the Nixon investigation. And finally, we just heard Tom Brokaw on Article 2, Inside Impeachment, comparing Trump unfavorably to Nixon. Members will hear more detail on the political fallout for the country from the Andrew Johnson presidency and the failure to impeach, of course. Uh, it, it was a pivotal moment for the country in the wake of the Civil War, and that one vote that he was acquitted by may very well have set the movement for equal rights back by at least 100 years. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash left. And now, we'll hear from you. Jay, this is Jeff, longtime listener and supporter from New York. Please declare an end to this fiscal cliff crisis. With all due respect, it's self-imposed. Those you cited who told you that this is the way the internet works now are correct. Anyone who's used Amazon or Facebook or Google already has had a shitload of information gathered about them. Best of the left's doing the same will make very little difference. If I'm offered the choice between having best of the left with this info gathering and not having best of the left, I'll choose having best of the left. Let's face it, even if you get over this hump, you've still lost potentially one-third of your revenue and have an ongoing crisis. So let them gather information about the shoes I wear and the books I read. I say all this with the proviso that everyone who is going to contribute due to the fiscal cliff crisis 
Do so anyway with the realization of what a valuable resource Best of the Left is. That includes me. I renew my membership every December, including this one. Now let's begin the new year by celebrating the immediate end of the fiscal cliff crisis and by contributing to Best of the Left. Thank you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in, still catching up, but hearing about the membership. And I thought it'd be worthwhile for me to call and say why I became a member, because I know the first year and a half, two years, I did what I'm hearing some other people did, you know, one-time donation here, one-time donation there. And at one point, I think I just made the decision to become a member because I felt the impact you were having on making me a better person. I was starting to realize that it wasn't just information I was getting. I was changing. I was becoming a better person. And I remember it specifically being about drugs and marijuana and and legal implications of that and how I was moved to be changing my opinion on some things I was growing up with. And then I also thought about the pledge drives, you know, I'm sure a lot of us listeners also might listen to NPR or public television. And God, I hate those long pledge drives. It's like, just give me the news. And I don't have to deal with that with you because, A, I'm proud to be a member, but, but, but I don't have to go through that. So, you know, thank you for not letting me listen to 20 minutes, a half hour in a show of pledge drives of, of if we donate now, you know, we might get a, a free best of the left t-shirt or sticker or something like that. Um, but you know, those are, those are two things and two highlights as to why I became a member and proud to be a member. One is because, because the impact you've had on me and really have made me realize and start to change to be a better person. And two is I don't have to listen to the pledge drives. So I'm encouraging all you non-members to pony up, add on, and two bucks a month, join the rest of us, become a member, and stay awesome. Thanks and toodles. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So thanks to the, the two callers we had, Alan, supportive as always, and Jeff, though I... I understand his argument, but I am surprised to hear it from listeners of this show, especially people who've been listening for years and years like Jeff, because you know he, he, it seems like he's exasperated that I'm trying to do the right thing in the face of some odds. And it just makes me think like, what's the point of a show like this if we don't try to do the right thing in face of some odds? Like that's kind of what progressivism is all about. You know, it's, it's like saying hey, Bernie and Warren should take corporate donations. Hey, you know, if you, if you want to make more money, like just, just go along with the system. Like there's a reason why people go against corrupt systems. It's to try to fix the system. 
and mitigate damage in the meantime. And as Jeff laid out, it is not a binary choice. It's not a, well, if I have to give up my privacy to hear the show, or I just can't have the show, well, then I choose to give up my privacy. Okay, great. That, I mean, I appreciate that that's how much you want to hear the show, but those aren't the only two options. That's why there's a campaign. <laughs> that's why there's a membership drive. And that's why more than 200 people, I think, have signed up and, and many more have increased the donations that they already had to make that third option viable. Let's maintain the show and not spy on people. Let's just do both of the good things and not the bad thing. And, and yeah, sure. Everyone's been spied on. We all have files, you know, not not the FBI files we used to worry about, but corporate aggregated files that you know, track us based on our metadata and know all of our habits and all of that. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't push back. And, and yeah, I, I agree. Best of left on its own isn't going to make a big difference. But this is how we build popular movements to create the systemic change that we need. Like, so, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about systemic change, but just for instance, another listener wrote in and, you know, was thanking me very much for my principled stance, uh, you know, standing up for privacy and against the, you know, forces of internet neoliberalism and capitalism that are, you know, tr trying to get, uh, you know, every piece of information on everyone in the world. But this person asked, would VPNs help? If I have my VPN turned on, would that block the tracking? And my answer is probably, but that's a personal solution to a systemic problem. So yeah, I use a VPN myself. I recommend that anyone who has the capability also run a VPN on their computer and their phone and, and whatever. But that's not the solution. That's a stopgap measure to a systemic problem that we have. And it's not up to individual people to fix systemic problems. You, you can stem the tide a little bit. You can, you know, make it better for yourself, but everyone else is still being victimized. So, you know, sure, I, I agree. Use a VPN, but that, that's a, a, you know, a personal solution. And what we need are systemic solutions. So for instance, Europe. And California, starting at, at the beginning of the new year, will have laws in place making this exact kind of data mining without opt-in consent illegal. And we need to keep the pressure on in every possible way, large and small. So obviously, this little show taking a principled stand is a small way, but it's part of creating a new cultural norm of people demanding better. Like, maybe we're one of the first shows to do this, but someone has to go first. A progressive show like ours makes perfect sense for us to be a little bit on the cutting edge of a campaign like this to try to stem the tide and turn things back. Sure, data mining across the internet has become the norm. It, it is what we are used to, but we don't have to let it get worse because it isn't already this way with podcasts and it, it's trying to push podcasts into that world. So we can push back against that and ultimately we can try to stem the tide and, and push it back 
across the internet. As I said, that's what Europe and California have already done. We need to make those sorts of laws more and more ubiquitous to create a new normal that we are used to. We need to be used to the idea that we are not going to be personally tracked unless we have opted in and affirmatively said, okay, yeah, I understand what you're doing. It's okay. Go ahead. I want the personalization or whatever. So ultimately, I know that Jeff and people like Jeff who have made similar comments are are saying it out of love and kindness for the show and, and support that they want for whatever it takes they want the show to keep going. I appreciate that. I, I, I know where you're coming from, and I appreciate it. That is not the right way to look at problems like this. If I thought these are my only two choices and I'm going to run the risk of shutting the show down, I probably would have said, okay, you know what? Like, there's no way around this. This is what I have to do. But I didn't think that that was the case. I thought if I ask the listeners to support us and explain why I need the support, they will come through for me. They have always come through for me from the very first time I started asking for donations and and introduced the idea that this could become a full-time job and that I could put out more content than I ever had before. And all I needed was the support of you know a few hundred members chipping in a little bit. Ever since then, people have signed up and supported the show, and we've been going strong. It's been my full-time job now for 10 years. So I have, I think, every right to have a belief in the listeners to support the show when it needs the support. And it's not just new patrons that can help fill this gap. I I mentioned, you know, a while ago when I started this campaign— you know, it's not just about new patrons. I am throwing everything I can at the wall. Uh, there are companies that help sell ads for podcasts who think that data mining is unethical, not to mention illegal in parts of the world. And so they simply refuse to do it on principle. And so to that end, I'm going to try to work with a company like that. Um, I, I've worked with them before. They're, they're my hosting company, so I, I've been with them in one capacity, just hosting the show forever. They have sold some ads for me in the past. It's just not their, you know, it, it's not their main mission. So I'm going to try to revamp that relationship and, and see uh, what ads they can sell, which they will do in an ethical way. So to that end, there's another way that you can help, totally free, and it's just by filling out a very short audience survey. We get that advertisers need some information about the demographics of an audience. This is nothing like data mining. So they they have just a few questions, get a load of the sort of broad things they're asking for. Gender, age, marital status, ethnicity, education, household income. That's it. It's just the basics so they can match up advertisers with a general sense of our listenership. So if you can take the single minute that it'll take to fill out that survey, that's going to help kickstart our efforts to keep some amount of revenue flowing from advertisers, and the ads will only be from advertisers who don't demand data mining, which is nice because we're not offering it. And so it's sort of automatically weeds out advertisers who are super creepy and demand that kind of information because uh, that's just not on the menu for them. Uh, So 
In terms of patrons donating directly, we still need as much help as we can get. We have a goal of a thousand patrons. We're about 70% of the way there. So if you're writing a list of end of year donations and subscriptions for organizations you want to support in 2020, please keep us in mind. When you go to our Patreon page, you can see the progress of our campaign. It's not, don't just take my word on the show for it. You can see the Patreon, you know, little bar filling up from, uh, from, from zero to our goal. And you can see how, how far we are in the moment and, uh, judge for yourself whether we still need your help. In addition to that, as I said, it only takes you a minute to fill out our survey, and you can find links to both of these pages, our Patreon page and the survey page, in the show notes right on the device you're using to listen, probably, or on the website. Uh, the Patreon link is easier to say out loud. It's patreon.com slash bestofleft. The survey page is more complicated, so just look for it in the show notes. And now, finally, that is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, as always, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.